welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. Good morning. If you would, please turn your Bibles to the letter of First Timothy. First Timothy. Thus far in Paul's letter to Timothy, we have heard a call to guard the gospel, a personal testimony of how the gospel impacted Paul, and a call to be a faithful soldier, though others prove faithless. In some ways, chapter 1 serves as an introduction or foundational statement of Paul's letter to Timothy. And in chapter 2, we will begin to see more specifics of what things Paul wants Timothy to set in order or correct in Ephesus. As Paul says in chapter 3, he was writing these things so that they would know how one ought to behave in the household of God. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Paul will begin by calling believers to pray. And not just to pray for themselves and those within their church family, but also to pray for all people. You may be thinking, that's a pretty simple concept, but the following verses have stirred up much disagreement over the centuries. And if books have been written about this passage and passages like it, then it would be unrealistic for me to be able to answer or resolve every question about these verses in 35 minutes. Instead, what I hope to accomplish today is to show you the point Paul is making in verses 1 through 7, while also at the end discussing some differing views or interpretations of this passage. So let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer and ask God to help us as we study His Word. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Some parts of Your Word are more difficult for us to understand. And I pray, Father, that you will give us understanding this morning. I pray that your word would be clear, that I would not distract from it, that I would not cause any cloudiness in people's understanding or mind. I pray that your words would come through clearly. Father, would you help us now to focus our minds and our hearts on you? May our goal, our combined goal, be worship to proclaim in our hearts and to others who you are and that you are worthy of our devotion and our love. Would you please bless us now as we look in your word. Help us, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> so let's go turn, if you haven't already, to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read these for us. First of all, then... I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead a peace that, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. 
For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling you the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Until there. Paul gives us the sense that he is now moving into the specifics of what needs to be implemented at Ephesus when he says, first of all, then. This is the first among many instructions about how one ought to behave in the household of God. Paul urges the church in Ephesus to lift their hearts and voices to God in prayer. And these prayers were to be filled with supplication, which is requests for, the, for meeting of needs, intercession, asking for God's will to be accomplished, though the world is broken and evil, and thanksgiving, expressing gratitude for God's grace. Though general prayer of this sort is always encouraged, Paul gets more specific at the end of verse 1. He doesn't simply say, I urge that prayers be made, period. Instead, he says, I urge that prayers be made for all people. Now, I don't believe Paul is urging the church in Ephesus to get a copy of the Roman census scrolls for every province in the known world at that time, and then to begin systematically praying through every single name on the list. I don't believe that's what he's getting at. I also do not believe he is making a general statement, urging the Ephesians to pray in each service something like, God, please help everyone. Amen. I do not believe that is what he's getting at. As we continue into the remainder of the text, I hope it will become clear that Paul is poking at an idol of the heart or an idol in the heart of some of the Ephesian believers. Paul is taking is taking human centered religiosity and flipping it upside down, revealing the beauty of God's will in saving people from every tribe, nation and tongue on earth. You see, there were some in Ephesus who believed and taught that salvation was only for specific people. We saw in chapter 1 how some men were teaching others that they had to keep the Old Testament law in order to be saved. Others were teaching something similar to Gnosticism, which is the belief that salvation comes through some secret knowledge. And therefore only attainable by the intellectual elite. And still others, especially among the Jews, were still holding to the belief that salvation was gained through your connection to a specific bloodline. Thus the fascination with genealogies. Instead of these false ideas of salvation, Paul will argue that God's will is to save people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And that's why he says, pray for all people. He wants the Ephesian believers to practice praying for all people without distinction, without prejudice to their race, language, bloodline, intellect, religion, position, or personal merit. Paul continues to emphasize this point in verse 2. He says to Timothy, I urge the Ephesian church to make supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for all people. And then note this, for kings. And all who are in high positions. That phrase is pretty easy to breeze past in our daily Bible reading. Until you put faces and names to the kings and rulers who have reigned over Christians throughout the centuries. 
Simply looking at the rulers and power in Paul's day will suffice to give us a sense of the difficulty of what Paul is requiring. During this time in history, Emperor Nero reigned over the Roman Empire, which controlled the entire Mediterranean and the majority of Christians at this point in history. Historians tell us that Nero was a compulsive and devoid of moral bearing. Some suggest that Nero himself ordered the burning of Rome in order to free up space for one of his building projects. And then to, to shift suspicion from himself, he accused the Christians in Rome of causing the fire. Christians were labeled a plague on society and increasingly suffered the brunt of Nero's descent into madness. This led to wider persecution from others in power as they followed the precedent set by the emperor. This is the setting that Paul is writing in. He is writing to Christians in Ephesus, a Roman city, telling them to pray for those who rule over them without distinction to their nationality, political position, or whether or not they were their enemy. Why? Why waste one moment of positive thought or a single word of prayer on those in power, especially those who use that power to persecute Christians? Why? Paul says in verse 2 that one reason we pray for them is because their leadership directly impacts the capacity to which the church can function. Pray for them so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life Godly and dignified in every way. Our prayers to God for our leaders impact the freedom of religion within this nation. I'm not saying that if we pray for our leaders every week during our intercessory prayer that they will never be able to harm us. But what I am saying is that God hears the prayer of His children. He, and He delights to answer our prayers when we pray with His heart and His mind. And in this passage, it becomes very clear that this is a good desire for every Christian to have. That we would be allowed in this life to lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. Repeatedly in Scripture, the concept of shalom or peace Tranquility or completeness is encouraged as a godly desire in this life. Though this peace is often assaulted by the brokenness of this world and our own failures, it is clear that peace is still a godly desire. And surprisingly, the Christian can experience inner peace regardless of outer persecution. Jesus told his disciples I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. There will be times of tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Despite outward circumstances, the Christian can have peace in their heart because their victory and security in Christ is already won. But in this passage... In 1 Timothy, Paul is specifically stating that it is good for Christians to pray for and desire peace in their hearts and external quietness of life. 
Persecution, starvation, drought, and war are enemies of both inner peace and external quietness of life. Paul further describes the quiet life at the end of verse 2. We are to desire and to strive after a life that is godly and dignified in every way. We have many similar admonitions in Scripture, and one of the most applicable for our discussion today is in Romans 12. Paul writes to the believers in Rome this. He says, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Until there. This is what it means to live a godly and dignified life in a broken world. Practicing compassion, humility, patience, extending mercy to our persecutors as we have received mercy from God. Seeking to overcome evil with goodness, which is godliness. And as Paul says in Titus 2, Beginning in verse 6, he says, Be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. To pray for all people without distinction or prejudice, for kings and those in authority over us, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, as we read in verse 3. But at the end of verse 3 and into verse 4, Paul again will emphasize what I believe is the point of this whole passage. He says that prayer for all people, even our enemies, is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. At the end of verse 3 and into verse 4, Paul emphasizes that the God who saved you and me, undeserving sinners, is the same God who desires all people to be saved. He doesn't just desire the rich or the poor, the powerful or the weak. His desire is not dictated by skin color or political views. And God's desire to save a people for his name is unaffected by the personal merit or worthiness of the objects of his love. In a phrase, I believe the point Paul is making 
as, is that we are to pray for all people without distinction because God desires all people to be saved without distinction to what they bring to the relationship. Contrary to the belief and practice of some of the Ephesians that salvation was only for specific people with the right bloodline or knowledge or adherence to a set of rules, contrary to that, the message of forgiveness and redemption through Jesus Christ is for all people without distinction, without prejudice, without a thought to their bloodline, intellect, or morality. You see, no one deserves what Jesus offers. Not the Jews, not the tribe of Levi, and certainly not the descendants of David. No intellectual could ever rise high enough in their minds to see into heaven, and no Pharisee or holy man could ever keep even a single of one of, one of God's laws Perfectly for his entire life. No one deserves what Jesus offers. The only reason any one of us is saved this day is because God desired it to be so. Amen. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth without distinction, without prejudice, about what family you were born into or what mistakes you have made. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Amen. It was essential in Paul's day to make this point because of the false teaching that was creeping into the church of Ephesus. But don't be too quick to dismiss the need for this truth today. Around the world and in South Africa, there are still some who hold to a position that the gospel is not for all men. Whether it is through clear positions they hold and teach, or simply in the way they act toward other people, this anti-gospel is still alive and well today. And we must guard and examine our own hearts against this type of distinguishing between who I think deserves the gospel and who does not. In verse 5, Paul continues his reasoning by stating the clear fact that there is only one God and there is only one way to God. Verse 5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. When Paul says that there is one God, he is declaring that there is only one creator God, the one who made all people. He is the maker and owner of all people. There's no people group outside his reign. Amen. And this God who made all people and owns all people has made one way in one way only for mankind to have peace with him. There is only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Paul's previous words were meant to display the arms of God thrown wide in a welcoming embrace to any and all who come to him in faith. Without distinction to any merit of their own. But these words in verse 5 are intended to do the exact opposite. These words point to the exclusive nature of the one God 
who provided the one mediator. There is only one. There is no other. There is no exceptions. The man Christ Jesus is the one mediator between God and men without any exception. Why? Because Christ Jesus is not simply another man. Christ Jesus is the God-man, and therefore he is the only one capable of accomplishing peace between God and man. How did Jesus accomplish this? How can he offer peace with God to all people? Verse 6 tells us that Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. When Paul speaks of Jesus as a ransom, he is drawing on the mental image of a payment being made in order to buy back something that was lost or imprisoned. You see, because of our sinful condition, we stand guilty before God, who is both the offended party and the judge. And because God is the righteous judge of the universe He will never let sinful rebellion go unpunished. According to the creator and king of the universe, the just consequence of sin is the shedding of the blood of a sinner and eternal death in hell. In addition to this final judgment, man is cursed to serve our chosen master. Sin. Man on his own is a slave to sin, condemned to death, and destined for hell. Without divine intervention, this is the just and righteous condition of every man, woman, and child who has ever lived. We must believe this. We must reject the notion that I was in some way worthy of rescue. Some modern writers or preachers may try to convince you that the secret to true joy in Christ is to often remind yourself of how valuable you are. But in reality, true joy in Christ comes when we recognize the clear and repeated truth of Scripture that Jesus loved us even though we were unlovable, enemies of God, slaves to sin, condemned to death, and destined for hell. Because of God's desire to save His people, God the Son came to earth in the likeness of man. He was given the name Jesus. And as the God-man Jesus, he willingly paid the price that God demanded. He, Jesus, was cursed. The crushing weight of all our sin was placed on his shoulders. He was condemned to death. His blood was shed instead of ours. And this infinite being endured the fire of God's wrath against sin in a span of only a few hours. 
Christ Jesus paid the required price to God the Father in order to secure our release from sin, death, and hell. He paid the ransom price. This is the testimony given at the proper time. That the Christ, the promised one of God, must suffer and die in order to ransom a people to God. This is not what the Jews were looking for. And the Gentile world was for the most part completely clueless. But at the proper time, the mystery of the suffering Savior was revealed to the whole world. Not just to the Jews. Not just to the intellectual elite. Not just to the followers of the law. So what is the point Paul is emphasizing throughout this whole passage? He says, pray for all people. And the point is, without distinction, God has not given you permission to pick and choose. His desire to save bursts the bubble of our man-made categories of worthiness. God is the creator and owner of all people. And he has sent Christ Jesus as the one and only mediator who paid the required ransom price. Who are we to reject anyone that God receives? Amen. I believe that is the point Paul is teaching throughout this passage. Verse 7 concludes this reasoning as Paul defends his ministry to the Gentiles based on the previous statements. In verse 7 it says, For this, speaking of the testimony of Jesus, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Because God desires all people to be saved, and not just Jews, Paul was appointed a messenger to go to the Gentiles with the gospel of Christ Jesus, our ransom. Throughout his ministry, Paul would be persecuted and maligned for going to the Gentiles. Because he didn't go to them saying, you need to become Jews to be saved. Instead, Paul proclaimed, you need Jesus to be saved. Praise God, this message of the gospel is for the whole world. And not only for those who deserve to hear it. Otherwise, none of us would be saved. In conclusion, I'd like to make a couple notes. This passage has generated much debate. And I intentionally avoided most of the debate because I didn't want you to become distracted and miss the point Paul was teaching. Paul is clearly urging the Ephesian believers to pray for all people, whether they like them or not. Pray that we may live peaceably among our neighbors and ultimately pray for their salvation. But Paul's use of the phrase, all people, has left questions in people's minds. And I will attempt to address two primary questions. The first question that comes up is, because God 
desires all people to be saved, does that mean that everyone will be saved? Well, Scripture is clear. Scripture is clear that not all will be saved from sin, death, and hell. Even Jesus himself stated that he will turn away hypocrites on the day of judgment in Matthew 7, 22-23. On the other hand, we should never say that God isn't sovereign enough to do whatever he desires to do. Passages like Psalm 115, verse 3 are clear, saying, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So if God is sovereign, completely in control, then why does it say in verse 4 that he desires something to happen, but we all know it isn't going to happen? I argued that in this context, Paul is emphasizing the global nature of God's desire to save. He desires to save all kinds of people. He isn't just in the business of saving Jews. My position is that that is the point of what he's getting at. But another faithful interpretation is that Paul is expressing God's moral will. What he declares is good for all people to do. The logic goes like this. God says it is his moral will that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But mankind in his sinfulness is allowed to reject God's moral will. This is a true statement and is the point in other passages of scripture. Both of these are faithful, but of these interpretations of verse 4, I believe that the first is um, clearer. A second question that often comes up. If Jesus died as a ransom for all, then why do people still go to hell? If the payment is made, then why do not all go to heaven? I, again, argue that Paul is using the words all and all people generally here to describe all kinds of people across the whole globe, not just one certain bloodline. Jesus paid the ransom for all kinds of people, not the ones we would choose, not just the ones we would choose, and not just for the Jews. But another interpretation is that Paul is specifically teaching in this passage, that Jesus died for the sins of every person who ever lived. The argument goes this way. He suffered on the cross for every sin that had ever been committed, even the sins of those who would ultimately reject him and go to hell. This view states that Jesus paid the ransom price for every individual who ever lived but that only a few would avail themselves of that offer and be saved. There are many Christians who hold this view, and at Agape we have chosen not to create unnecessary division over this topic. There are brothers and sisters in this church who may disagree on this topic, but we call call each one of us to live in unity and not to divide over these (coughs) discussions. 
These questions this morning, though, should not distract us from the point Paul is teaching through this passage. He says, stop categorizing people. Stop choosing who deserves your prayers and who doesn't. Who are we to choose who deserves to be saved and who doesn't? Pray for all people that we may live at peace among our neighbors and that they will ultimately come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that we have the privilege of being part of your family. I praise you for the beauty of your church in this world. If we follow your way, if we walk closely behind Jesus Christ, our Savior, following his example in his footsteps, what a beautiful thing is the church of God in this world even praying and witnessing and loving our enemies. What a beautiful thing is your church. I pray that you would empower us, help us to live according to your way. Please, Father, convict us. Show us if there is any way in us that is not pleasing to you, that is racial, or where we have prejudice, or where we're acting out, living out distinctions amongst our neighbors, would we instead look at all people as those who are made in the image of God and people that you desire to save? May that be the testimony of this church I pray for your blessing this this today, that you would do a work in each one of us. And Lord, may you strengthen us as we go out. And I pray especially for those who are ill. And I think right now with Penny, as she goes through this procedure, Father, would you bless this dear lady? Would you strengthen Kevin? And Father, would we prove to be the church of the living God by wrapping our arms around this family and others who are struggling at this time. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.